Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. We explore a lot of big ideas on this show. And alongside them, a lot of specific tactics and frameworks that can support people in growing and changing for the better. This includes everything from how to get the most out of therapy, to dealing with traumatic experiences, to how to manage a variety of psychological conditions and individual tendencies, including towards things like OCD or anxiety, depression, and many more. There's a lot of different stuff in a lot of different domains on this show. But to me, there's a question that runs underneath almost everything we talk about. How does healing work actually? particularly in the context of this podcast, the healing of our own individual psychology. How can we grow and change over time? How can we overcome some of the innate tendencies that have been baked into us one way or another that are no longer serving us? And how can understanding these general principles about how healing works help us address specific issues as they come up? This is probably obviously, a very big question. And we may or may not be able to get all the way to the bottom of it today. But to help us along the way, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and I'm also happy to say he's my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm eager to get into this topic. Uh, one that's preoccupied me very personally, and certainly professionally, for 50 plus years. Yeah. And as you're kind of alluding to there, it's a very big topic. Yeah. Doing an episode like this is, to be honest, a, a little spooky for me as a host and kind of the content coordinator of the podcast, because it's such a big question. And we're going to naturally be summarizing, briefly touching on a lot of big ideas and probably oversimplifying some pretty nuanced material. So I give that as kind of a disclaimer before we get into it today. And before we get started, I do want to give a couple of additional quick reminders. First, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it on whatever you're listening to it on right now. And second, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you'll receive bonuses like detailed show notes, where I go into the research behind each episode, ad-free versions of the show, and transcripts of every episode on top of that. And then finally, we're planning on doing future episodes focused on answering questions from our listeners. And if you'd like to send in a question to be answered on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. So Dad, I would love to kind of start by me just talking a little bit about some stuff that I've been thinking about, and then maybe you could offer some commentary on it after that. How does that kind of sound? It sounds great for multiple reasons, including the ways that it's easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> the, bird, the burden is on you <laughs> to carry yeah. the water up the hill, which I like. Fair I enough. Like. It's about time, kid. Yeah, totally, totally, right? I'm bearing my end of the, of the burden here. But okay, so when we engage with this question, like, how does healing work? It sounds very big and very spacey. Yeah. But if you kind of just bring together a lot of big psychological ideas, as I've been thinking about this, I think that you can see some patterns. For instance, Freud talked about repression, and the basic idea is a really big and important one, which is this idea that we force ideas and desires and thoughts out of the conscious mind because they're too painful. Then we look at more kind of modern approaches to therapy like uh, internal family systems, which uses the language of exiled parts. These are 
parts of ourselves, often with their origins in childhood, that the rest of the psyche has pushed out of our consciousness because they are too painful. Then we've had past conversations on the podcast that focus on things like what we call the dreaded experience. And this is an emotional experience that you fear so much that you kind of warp your behavior around it. And these are essentially all forms of avoidance. We push away material that we're uncomfortable with rather than facing it directly. And when I connect the dots here to kind of my own individual journey over the last, you know, 34 years, but really the last kind of 10 years in a, in a pretty conscious way around it, I just think that so much of this whole question in terms of how we really grow and develop over time psychologically comes down to our desire to avoid suffering and approach reward, particularly in the short term, that kind of innate desire that we all have as big animals. And that fear that we might suffer if we extend a little bit past our comfort zone is such an organizing principle inside of our psyche. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to kind of put a pin in it there before getting to my kind of part two in a second and just give you an opportunity to comment on any of that. What we're trying to talk about here, I think of in terms of strategy distinct from tactics. Yeah. We're going up to well the said. big principle, big factor level, you know, the sort of the, the 20 they gives you the 80 or the five that gives you the 95. In other words, nice. the big yeah. rocks in the bucket mm -hmm. that you, yeah, that's what we're talking about here. And so I think you're naming something that's really important that has to do with being able to tolerate our experiences and through that tolerance, be less controlled by what we dread irrationally now as adults that may have been very rational previously, but now maybe the risk of it is much, much less. And yet we're still functioning in what we talk about inside the bars of our invisible cage. So there's that element here. And then there's also the element that you're naming around integration and inclusion, opening up to all of ourselves. Very So these are already being named as very broad principles. And a really broad principle that strikes me as in some ways encompassing at least some of that has to do with a shift in our relationship to what we're experiencing. So we can shift what we're experiencing, and there's a lot to be said for that over time, and also we can pop up to the meta level. This is not a reference to the rebranding of Facebook. We can pop up to the <laughs> process level. <laughs> we are avoiding commentary on that one on this podcast, yes. <laughs> In which our relationship to the pain and joy that we're experiencing starts to change. And that's where things like acceptance, mindfulness, compassion, in our relationship to what we're experiencing can really, really help there too. Mm -hmm. And so I, I kind of want to just put a pin in that one too along the way, shifting yeah. our relationship totally. to what's happening, distinct from changing it itself. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think that that's a huge part of this whole thing as well. And when we talk in these kind of big general ways, like you were saying, big rocks in the bucket, general principles, stuff like that, yeah. it's really easy for stuff to get kind of vague or airy or, or yeah. extremely cognitive and breaking apart these ideas in ways that can feel like a little yeah. overly technical sometimes. So I want to kind of put this in the field of a personal story. And the person's narrative that I know the best is my own. So I'm going to frame this in terms of my own experience. And I would love for you, Dad, again, to kind of listen to what I'm about to say 
with both the mind of a psychologist, which you did for you know clinical practice for thirty five mm-hmm. years or something like that, still do so far, yeah. And also with an eye to unpacking these kind of big stories, because I'm going to sort of make an argument here, and I'm I'm curious what your take is on it. So. If you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, it probably won't come as a shock to you that I think of myself as being a pretty top-down, cognitively-oriented thinker type. And I was either natured or nurtured into being that. We talk a lot on the podcast about how there are these two big things that contribute to what we end up being in life, nature aspects and nurture aspects. It's really hard to untangle them from each other. They kind of co-create each other. Um, and so it's sort of hard to say whether or not that is really my deep nature or if those were just the circumstances I was kind of put in that led to me being this way. Hmm. But either way, I spent a considerable chunk of my life largely divorced from the emotional experience, particularly the emotional experience of my body. Yeah. This isn't to say that I didn't have like strong emotions, as my dad would probably be happy to affirm, I had very strong emotions, particularly as a kid. And on the contrary, my body sensations associated with those emotions were often almost overwhelming. But I would kind of push that experience down in a variety of different ways. And there's this recollection, kind of like a sense memory that I have that is very strong. And I really connect it to being like 14 or 15 or 16 years old those kind of like painful mid-teen years, right? Yeah. Where I would have some experience that was an emotional experience and there would be the somatic or body-based element to it where my feelings would kind of bubble up into my throat and I mostly didn't let them get past there. Yeah. I rarely let the fizz out of the bottle, to use a phrase that I've come to like a lot, mm. where I, I think that a lot of the time people walk around life kind of like a soda bottle that's been shaken one too many times. <laughs> and what happens is we just keep on shaking and life happens to us and we shake the bottle and we shake the bottle and we rarely let the fizz out of it gently. We normally just open up the bottle and the fizz comes out all at once. And we've all had those experiences, right? Where just all of a sudden our emotions explode. Yeah. And because I was so held, this led to a kind of tightness in my interactions with other people that kind of almost mirrored the intensity with which I repressed my own emotions and sensations and feelings, right? Mm. And as I've gotten older and engaged with this process more seriously, I have found to me, maybe a little counterintuitively, to some people, maybe not surprisingly, some of the most healing and cathartic practices to be ones where I fully tune into the experience of my body and I allow those sensations to flow freely. And as I've been able to let those feelings flow, they've become less intense. As I've gotten more comfortable being kind of honest with myself about what I'm feeling and vulnerable with other people, I've become less attached to the defense mechanism of excessive cognizance. This doesn't mean that I'm not like a top-down person anymore. I totally am. But it's balanced with this increasing comfort in the body. And this kind of whole long story time, which hopefully was somewhat interesting to people listening, and maybe you can find Mm -hmm. elements of that story in your own experience. Maybe it's not that you were a top-down person. Maybe it's that you were a bottom-up person and you pushed away kind of more cognitive aspects. Or maybe you were sort of an introverted person by nature and extroverted experiences became so threatening and painful for you that you started to avoid, 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 and you just retreated and retreated and retreated. Whatever the story is for you, 
My kind of thesis about this is that much of the time, our personal growth and our healing comes through integrating the things that we push aside in our lives. We we kind of achieve wholeness Mm -hmm. by uniting different opposing forces. And a lot of people have talked about this. This is not a super original idea, whether it's in terms of like our growth happens outside of our comfort zone or braving the unfamiliar country or even like yin and yang or things like that, like the integration of opposites. I just think that that is such a key aspect to this whole process. So that monologue complete. What do you think about all this, Dad? I love you heaps, Forrest. Oh, that's a great place to start. (laughs) (laughs) As a parent, it's really poignant for me to hear you describe your journey. Mm. I'm also joyful for you and your insight and growth and everything. And I feel a camaraderie with you Mm. in part because I had something of a similar journey. And so all that's there. And we could go down another path here that probably would involve finding some Kleenex. Uh, but I think I'll kind of sort of keep it together. <laughs> okay. a, for, it's probably for the uh, best. <laughs> I don't know, functional kind of level. And yeah. you know, do my job here a bit. It's so, so many beautiful, clear, helpful, broad principles in what you're saying. One is the broad and really important principle of just releasing. Mm. of mm-hmm. feeling the unexperienced experience, as it were, that's been pushed down. Freud talked about the return of the repressed and really feeling it. Now, to be able to feel it, to tolerate that, we need to grow resources inside ourselves, like inner calm, the sense of being cared about, um, a certain steadiness of attention, some executive functions that can manage it. And more broadly, we need to, here's that principle again, shift our relationship to the creepy crawlers in the basement, to the sludge in the bottled up sewer, pick your metaphor, so that when you do the fizz in the bottle, so when you pop the lid and and, you've shifted your relationship to what comes out so you don't feel so overwhelmed by it and you have a sense of understanding and compassion for it. So Mm -hmm. I, I hear those things. And by the way, as we go here, people might really want who are listening to tune into themselves and ask, What's applicable to me? And probably you'll hear a certain thing like, oh, releasing feelings, really allowing feelings to flow, really allowing you to get in touch with yourself at a deep level, including really young aspects of yourself. You might hear that and you might think to yourself, check, I got that. I really am in touch with my body. I really do have some feelings flowing. Really, really good. That's really great. Then you might hear another idea like, oh, including key warded off aspects of myself, including aspects Mm -hmm. that were socially disapproved of, like the whiny little kid or the wounded child or the bossy know-it-all who actually does know a lot about the way it ought to go. The intensely sexual part, the raging part, the nasty little critter part, The longing for awakening part. Okay, parts worded off. Or in Jungian language, the more masculine aspects, let's say, of a woman, the more feminine aspects of a man. Yeah, all of it. The shadow, da-da-da-da. And then hearing us talk about the usefulness of opening to all of that, to, in effect, including everyone who's seated at the table of the inner committee, or to shift a metaphor, opening to all the provinces 
of the great land that you are, not just living hunkered down in the capital city, you might hear that and you might go, oh, that's interesting. And maybe you know it's interesting as you listen here, because as soon as you hear it, you start getting a little emotional charge. Like, mm. that would be scary. Or, I would love to I don't focus want to hear on that. that. Yeah, absolutely. For just one second here and to kind of add on to the, the personal story, which will be much quicker. Yeah. A key aspect of this is that I got very attached to my cognizing, particularly yeah. when I was younger. I was defensive about it. I pushed away warm and fuzzy experiences to an extent. I thought that being a really kind of aggro, highly logical, pure thinker type was the right way to be in the world to a degree. And maybe also the corollary that people who are not like that were doing it the wrong way. Were doing it the wrong way (laughs) and they were bad and they should change the way that they were. Now, to be clear, I, I didn't it wasn't always this black and white. Like I had a degree of nuance. Mm. I wasn't just like totally, you know, a zealot for yeah, pure yeah. cognizing. I, I, I'm, right. I'm painting a picture here to make it a little bit easier to understand. Yeah. And real life obviously has a little bit more nuance in it. But all that said, yeah, I was very attached to my defenses for to kind of put it in psychological mm-hmm. language. Yeah. And so I think that a big part of this process is about slowly peeling back the attachment that we have, the story that we Mm. tell ourselves about how not only is this okay, but it's actually the right way to be. Well, that's great underlining what you're saying. So we're reversing roles here. You're coming out with all the great points. And then I'm doing the quick reflective summary. You're refining, totally. (laughs) It's good. It's really good. She was on the other foot a little bit. Yeah. So one thing... To me, the highlight of what you're saying is the ways in which we hold on to our familiar way of being, our defenses, our way of being, out of fears of the dreaded experience. And also, we hold on to it through a narrative that justifies it, makes it right, maybe feeds our sense of superiority to others. So that's something also to pay attention to. What's the story we tell ourselves uh, about ourselves and about other people, the past and the future? Second. Very often, the act, how we present ourselves to the world, the armor, the defense, the presentation, is actually the opposite, in a sense, of what's the truth underneath it all. Mm. So if I could comment on you, Forrest, and it would be true for me as well, Yeah, you're a person, and as a child, including an older child, you actually had almost overwhelmingly powerful feelings. You had very strong feelings. I think of you as a total heart guy. Mm -hmm. You're a huge heart guy who's very aware of his body. You were flooded. So in proportion to the upwelling of the flooding, you developed the lid (laughs) to hold it in place. So that's a general principle. Totally, yeah. That's a great point. Very often people who act For example, aggro and bullying on the outside often feel kind of weak on the inside. People get caught up in purity and, you know, pogroms against contamination of one kind or another, including at the political level, often have a very secret, dirty life one way or another. Many examples of that in the realm of religious um, teachers of different kinds, obviously. So it's a really interesting question. We used to do this workshop back when I was leading workshops in my really early 20s. 
we called it the inverse act process. And in a small group, by the end of the weekend, 30 or so people, you knew each other really well. And we would go around the room, in effect, designing a dreaded experience for Mm. each person. It was very often the opposite of their presentation. So, you know, for somebody like me, it would be like being weak and stupid. (laughs) They're like, whoa, I don't want to be weak or stupid. But that's where the value is. You know, so we talked about the cringeometer, the cringeometer. The more the the needle, you know, pegs on the dial, that's probably where the great value is. And so we would then do psychodrama for about an hour-long process that was just stunningly powerful, Mm. where people would go around the room acting out their opposite, you know, in a really hilarious kind of way. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we would debrief it later. So. That's that. Well, the last one to name has to do with, in a sense, our relationship to the strategies that we developed to survive and cope as a kid or as a younger adult. Yeah, no, this is this is a great point. I love this. Yeah. Okay. And to actually relate to those strategies in a way that appreciates them and values them. Yep. And doesn't shame ourselves for them. Totally. And understands the functions they served, and maybe even also, frankly, giving yourself a pat on the back. Way to go, Forrest. You built fantastic defenses. Oh, man, you became so (laughs) cerebral. Way to go. I could say way to go, Rick, or whatever. You know, it worked. It worked. A different kind of person. Wow, you really learned how to appease and placate people around you so they wouldn't hurt you. Wow. Or you really learned to lie about what you really felt inside just to deal with your alcoholic parents. Good for you. You know, okay, good. Now, that said, can we gradually shift from that well learned, really necessary and important strategy into other ways of being going forward? Yeah. No, this is a totally key point that I really want to highlight here because. It's very easy when we have these conversations to, I don't know quite the right way to phrase this, Dad, so feel free to jump in here and kind of help me out. But a lot of the time what happens is that we get into these very black and white, this aspect of psychology good, this aspect of psychology bad sort of conversations. And one of the ways that that happens is because it's really easy for us to attach value to different kinds of language. So what I mean by that is that a word like defense has a lot of connotations associated with it that are not inherently positive ones. So when we talk about activating somebody's defenses, the way that we normally use that kind of language is by saying something like, oh, you shouldn't be so defensive. But the truth is that most of the time, people's defenses are there for reasons. Like our psychology is actually super sophisticated and very good most of the time at protecting us emotionally. So if you had a pattern of behavior that emerged over time, it probably comes from somewhere and it was probably pretty rational in the moment. And then the question becomes, is it still rational these days? And that's the important question to ask yourself. Yeah, a funny, powerful exercise for people is to do what you can to get a picture, a photograph, ideally of yourself, at every year of your life. And if you're really old like I am, this could seem a little onerous, so it's okay to simplify it here. But basically, look at that kid and really basically say or write a note of appreciation 
to that kid for that year. There you were, sixth grade. I'm myself immediately remembering sixth grade, what I was dealing with. You know, I was very young when I started sixth grade. I think I was nine, maybe. And a lot of weird things really came through to basically compliment yourself as that kid and value what you had to create. And in a funny kind of way, valuing the act you developed, the persona you put on, the defenses you acquired, the the feelings you pushed down, valuing that then actually opens up a space in which there can be a shift. And here also, I want to name another very broad principle that was highlighted by Fritz Perls, and it's implicit in other areas. It's the notion of completing a pattern so that it can disappear. Completing the gestalt, in other words. And so, and for example, Peter Levine has uh, really taught a lot profoundly related to this general principle in the sphere of trauma. That trauma, a lot as it's lodged in the body, has to do with the inhibition of a coping response that was impossible during the trauma itself. So, part of what we help people do is complete the trajectory of what that behavior was, or similarly, complete the valuing let's say, of our way of coping from our childhood, so then we can move on from it. People might ask themselves, what is longing to be completed inside themselves? What is longing Mm. to be completely expressed or completely heard or completely received? And when you have that feeling of gestalt, that's also often when you get a complete release. That's not incremental. You are released of that material because you've boom, boom, really completed around it. So you've totally cued us up here. I don't know if this was consciously or unconsciously, but set me up beautifully, Dad. So thank you for that one. Because you just talked about completion, release, all of these different kinds of words. And there's another word that we sometimes use in psychology, which is catharsis, that people talk Mm. talk about having a cathartic moment, which is essentially a word that just means the release of pent-up emotion. And it's generally particularly in the context of, quote-unquote, expressing it out, which is more or less what you're talking about here, where you have the opportunity to let some of that fizz out of the bottle in a really full way. We've spent a lot of time focusing on what kind of the problem is or or what gets in the way of us achieving this like wholeness or unity or the, Mm -hmm. the alchemy of opposites, however you kind of want to talk about. And I would love to spend a little bit of time talking about how we get the breakthrough, like how people get to the cathartic moment. Yeah. Because you've spent a lot of time in a room with people talking with them and probably cultivating the ground for some cathartic moments of one kind or another. And I would just kind of love to get a sense from you of how people have, how people get there. Yeah. Uh, It's profound. Um, So just thinking through it, one is sometimes people basically just move into intense emotion with a full release. Mm. They, for example, typically it's around crying. Yeah, There's a sorrow. I had a different kind of experience of that in a weird setting. I watched the first Alien movie in many, many years ago. If you've never seen it, it's a very, very scary film. And as someone prone to nightmares as a kid with a very active imagination, uh, horror films were something I'd really, really avoided. And 
I helped myself sit in the theater and I was right in the middle of a major personal growth surge uh, in mm. things I was doing around age 26 or so. And I let myself utterly feel the fear. Mm. And I just kept breathing. My hands started curling up. I was so I was totally terrified. But my relationship to the terror was had shifted. So I was allowing it and feeling it. And there was a lot that flowed through me in that process. So that's one way catharsis occurs. Another way catharsis occurs is through truth-telling, where you tell the truth to yourself in some way that really, really lands inside and is completely freeing. And for example, I've, I've known people who will hear from the therapist something, and then they'll say it for themselves and they'll really get it. Like I remember a woman really getting that her parents' unhappiness was not her fault as a kid. Like, wow, she had believed that it was her fault. So a shift of belief, a kind of a radical wholesale shift of belief. An example of that for me was the shift of my belief in my 20s as well, that I had been a wimp growing up, kind of a shameful, cowardly wimp. And in fact, no, I realized, no, I, I was a, I'd been a nerd, but in my ways, I was totally not a wimp at all. That was a revelation for me. So there was a shift of belief, that truth-telling. The third major way I see people get a complete release after catharsis of some kind and after kind of a revelatory shift of view is they get in touch with a really young part of themselves. Mm. And they include that really, really young part of themselves. And there's just something that happens that's really powerful when there's that sense of inclusion with kindness, I guess, and respect. And it's like that little kid inside can step forward and is and is forever after included, not warded off. And that right there shifts the inner ecology of who you are. So those are, I guess those are the three that I've that I would say. No, I think that's a, a beautiful summation of it. And Inherent in what you were saying a second ago when you said um, what, to paraphrase what you said, it was something along the lines of what follows a kind of awareness of the issue. You know, it's this idea that the mm. cathartic moment only comes after we're aware that something is problematic. It feels to me like there's this kind of sequence that people often go through things where often early on in life, we have some kind of a painful experience. And that painful experience yeah. leads us to develop some kind of a behavior. If the bad thing happens that causes pain. And from that, we go, I don't want to feel that anymore. So we develop some armor or some scaffolding kind of around it to protect ourselves. And then from there, yeah. we go into a phase of kind of repression and obliviousness. Like we don't even know that this armor has been developed most of the time. Some people skip that phase mm -hmm. and they're aware of what they're doing. But for most people, myself included, uh, the issue was beneath the level of my awareness. Maybe I had like some contacting of it. Um, but I was so allied with it that I wasn't able to really see it clearly. And then things get to kind of like a partial awareness or denial. The, the mm. classic line around this is kind of, I can quit whenever I want. Mm. And then from there, things tend to transition if people continue to grow and change toward avoidance, which is some version of saying basically, I should probably do something about this, but I really don't want to. So you need to have most of the time, I think, a degree of awareness of there being a challenge in order for you to get to that cathartic experience. 
Um, so you're welcome to comment on that for starters. But also, I just have another question for you. Do you think that the big emotional upwelling, the big cathartic moment is necessary for people? Great question. And one that's intrigued me immensely. Mm. And there's no clear, in my knowledge, there's no clear and compelling scientific answer to this question. Yeah. It's it's subtle. It's complicated. First, I want to name maybe a fourth kind of wholesale change, which is hitting bottom. Sure. Yeah. That's a real category. Totally. Where, you know, you wake up, I've had my versions of hitting bottom where you just get it at almost a moral level that yeah. I know now not, you know, it might be a revelation <laughs> yeah, about totally. a certain yeah, a certain kind like, of person. Uh, ooh, not, yeah, nope, not for me, totally. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, people often have it around drugs and alcohol if they have a, a real important shift there, but there are other examples. So, uh, so a hitting bottom, uh, which can come with a certain remorse, even including with other people. So that's important. I think the way that healing shows up for people generally is a combination of incremental and qualitative change, uh, no surprise. And both are both are important. I have a friend and a teacher who talks about, he calls it the 51% shift. And this is someone, uh, Steven Snyder, uh, people can mm, check him mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. I admire him immensely. He's, he's yeah, we've literally had him on the, the real deal. Yeah, a phenomenal teacher and one who's done his own inner work. But he says that he finds that there's a shift where if more than 51% of the mind is really clear that the presumed entity self inside isn't really existing, that what there really is is a field of relationships and processes unfolding, loosely affiliated with a particular body over time. But at some point you get that, so you have like the revelation and then maybe 1% of you knows is true, but 99% of you, nah, same old, same old, familiar sense of kind of ego-centered way of operating. But if you get to that 51% tilt, mm. then you've shifted. So, And I think that's probably true for a lot of things, actually. Yeah, totally. No, I think that that's a great way to... And that's hopeful, too. ...kind of con conceptualize a, a yeah. pretty often, like, like what's sort of running underneath the way that we're talking about this conversation is how these topics are really challenging to put into coherent language. Mm. And sometimes words fail, yeah. you know? So if we can kind of simplify down a little bit, it does really help us understand this stuff. And I think that idea of like the 51% of you that knows something yeah. is a really good way to put it, actually. Because I can think of a lot of previous moments in my life where you know, 10% of me do something and the other 90% was kind of like, all right, yeah, 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 okay, pipe down 10%. You know, and then over time, you finally get to a place where you know, more than half of you is there. Yeah. And sometimes the catharsis is found in where, and in, in when the inflection point happens, when it goes yeah. from being 40-60 one way to 40-60 the other way. That's right. That's, that, that's really good. Mm. And there are other times where, to use kind of the language of EST, the EST training and People would talk about pulling the whole stack or pulling mm. the whole string of earlier similar. And we need both of these things and we get both of these things. And you can see that some trainings and some trainers focus more on one or the other. You know, right? You have like primal scream approaches, just get it all out. Uh, you know. Then you have other like psychoanalysis, six sessions a week to slow chipping away at the 
structure of neurosis. So I think both are really good. I wanted to name one more broad principle. It's really different from anything we've said so far. And to put it a certain way, it's healing is accomplished based on getting in touch with something or taking refuge in something or dwelling in something that is really positive. And you give over more to that current in your life. And I I think an example of that is the healing power of love, broadly. Giving over to love, uh, opening to love, being lived by love, uh, valuing love, opening your heart, and just getting in touch with lovingness Mm. and coming from lovingness. Neurotic habit patterns may still be cooking along, but just by staying in touch with this lovingness, actually, there's a real shift for people in how they're operating. Mm. One example of this is certainly for people who get in touch with what is, for them, the divine. And it's just a fact that there are a lot of people who became a lot happier and actually started acting in a lot better ways because they had some kind of significant religious, or I'll call it spiritual experience. Yeah, totally. Now, obviously, organized religion, issues with that, wanting to steer clear of people getting caught up in the hobby horses of righteousness and sectarianism and blah, 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 blah. But just factually. Yeah, for sure. For a number of people, getting in touch with something really sacred and profound, it could be nature in the sense that that for them is their their wellspring. But that might be also something of value for people to ask yourself, what are your own sources? What are your own wellsprings, your own major refuges? And how could your healing be accomplished by resting more deeply, dwelling more consistently in them? That's a huge resource for so many people. And uh, as we've had many conversations on the podcast in the past where where I've said very openly, like there's a part of me that absolutely wishes that I could just like find God on some level, you know, and just yeah. just give it up to that. And that I would have a lot of existential concerns that would probably get tamped down if I were able to do that. But I'm just yeah. not oriented that way. And, and that's okay too. Yeah. But for a lot of people, whether it's organized religion or or it's much more informal forms of spiritual practice or even just like a general vague sense of connection with something bigger than yourself, whether that be yeah. Common humanity, other people, nature, like whatever you find that resource. So it can be really, really powerful for people to kind yeah. of move us a little bit towards something slightly more practical, maybe if this has all felt a little big picture to you and you're listening still. To return to kind of like my individual thesis, which is that a lot of this mm-hmm. happens when we're able to reclaim exiled parts of ourselves or find the unity yeah. of opposites or integrate aspects of the personality that have been pushed aside, you know, whatever it is. In my experience, like my own catharsis really occurred when I was as a quote unquote head type or not a head type, just somebody who had sort of divorced the body from my experience when I was finally able to kind of connect with my body's needs in a variety of different ways. And so to steal the language of Buddhism, kind of what we're talking about here is sort of an allegory for just kind of walking the middle path, you know, finding the way in between the two extremes. And in much the same way, we've kind of focused on two big categories. We've talked about developing an awareness of what's going on inside your own Mm -hmm. patterns, the way you were when you were young, the things that you could still stand to integrate into your experience, all that stuff. And then on the other hand, 
getting in touch with that, you know, playing with the unfamiliar, uh, like you were saying, sitting in the movie theater and allowing the fear to wash over you. I would imagine you did a fair amount of stuff before you got to a point where you felt comfortable doing that. And so I'd like to kind of talk a little bit toward the end here about how people can do that. Like, what are some of the things that support people in moving outside of their comfort zone or kind of bringing together those opposing forces. Continuing with my role of sort of saying back to you some of what you're saying, but and with a kind of maybe gloss around (laughs) it or something or other. So we're also talking about, as broad principles, healing through what we do inside ourselves and also healing through relationship. Mm. Very often, stepping into a community that is healing And it could be just casual, like the people you play bridge with or walk your dogs with. That's your community, and there's something really healing about that. Um, It's particularly useful to tap into communities of different kinds, whether it's your partner or some organization of political action that you have some allegiance to. It's especially useful to do that if if what you're doing is healing an interpersonal issue or an Mm. issue that arose in the field of relationships. And then more broadly, I definitely want to name a broad principle of healing that more and more people are talking about, which has to do with eco-psychology, we could say, forest bathing, not Mm, bathing mm -hmm. with Forrest Hansen, but bathing in the forests (laughs) with the trees, right? Uh, Otherwise, there might be a line out the door for us. Who can bathe with you? Uh, That's it. You should have like a... A lottery we're for Patreon. Moonwalking away from from this topic, Dad. We're just we're just doing a little slide back from it. Become a patron. I, this is a wonderful idea. Force be a, a very anyway, anyway. expensive it, tier, Dad. But all right, <laughs> I probably can't be bought. But nonetheless, okay, okay, okay. In our relationship with the wider world, and there too is a kind of healing. Where really, if you, if you can relate to it. The ways in which you feel like, wow, I'm actually part of a larger whole, part of the whole circle of life, you know, the wider sphere, the universe altogether. And and I have a very small place in that, which also means that the place I have is a precious opportunity not to be squandered in this human life. So that's another major, I would say, element of healing. So just focusing on the part of this that's kind of about getting comfortable outside of your comfort zone. I do want to affirm something mm-hmm. that you were just saying, which is that I think that social support is always amazing if it's available to you. Yeah. And not everyone has an amazing therapist or even a really good friend or a supportive partner or a family that's kind of going to have your best interests at heart. Not everybody has that. But if you do, there are remarkable resources for feeling safe and comfortable as you explore the parts of yourself that have been cast out of your experience. And as you try to go through the process of integrating these opposites. Another thing that's been really powerful and important for me personally is just playing with the nature of what an identity is. And what I mean by that is that I think for a long time, I kind of thought of myself as being a certain kind of person And I just was that kind of person. I was baked, you know, I was out of the oven. These things were all established and I kind of was the way I was. And I thought that about myself when I was like 17, you know, I was pretty young. 
And over time, I've increasingly come to understand identity as being a much more mutable and, I don't know, made from clay, not cast in bronze kind of thing. And I allowed myself to move into a position of being a more active creator of that identity. Rather than thinking about, oh, this is just the way I am, I started really reframing a lot of things in terms of, well, what's the kind of person that you would like to be? Do you want to be somebody who feels a little bit divorced from your emotional experience? Or would you really like it if you were able to experience those feelings in a, in a safer way? And so I think that that's been enormously useful for me personally, just reframing how I thought about identity broadly. That's good. I mean, part of that identity sense is a narrative, a story we tell. Totally, yeah. Part of it also is just sort of a feeling. Yeah. And how loose we let ourselves be. One thing too, I think that's incremental in healing is we start to sand the rough spots, mm. uh, especially of our rougher emotions or impulses. And one thing that happens with meditation, particularly over time, potentially and, and commonly, is that emotional regulation improves and a lot of the edgier and more angular, intense reactivities kind of soften over time, along with a variety of other benefits. So that's definitely been an important one. And, and then, of course, also uh, speaking to that broad principle of getting in touch with things that for you are really useful, like, frankly, a sense of vastness and spaciousness that starts to feel transpersonal. Minimally, you know, the edges start to blur and soften between the body boundary and the rest of the world. And you start operating more in that big picture, spacious kind of way. You're, you're just in touch with that. And when you're in touch with that, the things that used to bother you don't bother you so much. Uh, the things that arise in your mind arise more gently somehow because they're arising into a much vaster space. That, that itself is a kind of healing process, just to name it. You know, traditional metaphors I've used before, if you take a spoonful of salt, a spoonful of pain, put it in a small cup of water, stir it up and drink it, it tastes terrible. But if you put the same amount of salt, the same amount of pain in a large bucket of clean water, stir it up, take a cup out and drink it, you won't taste it so much. So that, that's, a, that's a real healing for people. If I could slip in one at the very end, maybe, that I have found to be very, very emotional and touching and poignant, it's to forgive yourself. Mm -hmm. We kind of alluded to aspects of this in terms of how you think about the coping strategies and defenses and shields and personas and masks you acquired in your childhood just to get through life or in adulthood as well. But I want to make it more pointed. There's a kind of heartfelt forgiving of yourself that includes the importance of appropriate, skillful, and moral action from here going forward. But definitely forgives yourself. Just forgive yourself. That feeling of sweetness and, and blessing, a soothing balm, it's so touching. To really bring yourself forgiveness uh, can be very deeply healing. Yeah, absolutely. And as we sort of come to an end here, I want to just emphasize something that might feel a little bit counterintuitive based on what we've talked about today, which is that it is really okay to double down on and give yourself credit for the things that you're good at. 
and the things that you are unnatural uh-huh. with and the things that come easily to you. Like these are beautiful and important aspects of our personality, of our psychology as well. And inside of this conversation, we've really emphasized how bringing in the aspects that are a little bit more foreign to us is a powerful way to integrate our personality as a whole and to become a more complete human, a a healthier, happier human out in the world. And I wholeheartedly believe that. And at the same time, I love being a thinky person. You know, I love being a cognitive person. I love having these certain kinds of facilities that maybe don't come so naturally to other people, just as they have facilities that don't come so naturally to me. And those points of difference are part of what makes people so interesting and the the world such a compelling place because we're not all the same and we're not all you know, perfectly integrated equally among all of our parts, right? Mm. And so for some people, a real avenue to being as healthy and happy as they are capable of being in this lifetime is by really emphasizing their strengths and putting themselves in positions where the things that are scary or spooky or weird for them just don't come up so much. And that's, I think, definitely an approach and a really okay way to handle this if that's what is really true for you. That's great. Great summary. Awesome. Well, today we had a pretty wide ranging, honestly, for me, really quite touching conversation uh, focused on how we can heal and grow and integrate the parts of ourselves that we've pushed away over time. We began today's episode with me giving a uh, bit of a monologue, just kind of bringing together some ideas that I'd been thinking about that all connect to this core concept that, for me at least, I've really found over time that my own personal growth, my own healing of my inner wounds has really come when I've integrated the aspects of my psychology, the aspects of my consciousness that I've really pushed away. The personal example that I've used is my own journey around accepting my emotional sensations and the feelings that live in my body. For a long time, because these sensations were so strong and so uncomfortable, I really pushed them away and I took refuge in my head. I was praised for my cognition in a variety of different ways. So really, pretty understandably, I gravitated toward my head. I gravitated toward cognizing about problems rather than trying to feel my way through them. And this led to a situation where when I had strong emotional experiences, I didn't really let myself experience them out. I just kind of held on to them. And this connects to a lot of big ideas in the psychological sciences. For instance, Freud's big idea of repression, where we basically force down painful experiences, ideas, desires, and thoughts, and we push them out of the conscious mind because they're just too painful for us to deal with. Then there are approaches to therapy like internal family systems that have a very similar view where we exile parts of ourselves that are in a lot of pain. Because again, we don't want to deal with that pain or that we think that there's something about that part that's really problematic and bad. So we push it outside of our cognition. These are all essentially forms of avoidance. Rather than having an authentic experience, we push it away. And over time, we calcify more and more around the parts of ourselves that we are comfortable with or that we don't find painful in any way. 
And this led to kind of my core theory about it, which is that our healing is often found through integration and unity. A lot of different traditions have a lot of different ways of talking about this. Buddhists refer to it as the middle path. Chinese philosophy uses yin and yang. And there are many other traditions that have talked about this as a core process that we go through as we grow and change over time. And I think that we could all be benefited by finding a healthy balance between intimacy and autonomy, between extroversion and introversion, comfort and discomfort, our somatic elements, our body-based elements, and our cognitive or brain-based, head-based elements. Uh, Martin Buber had this great language, I and thou, how we relate to each other, bottom-down and top-up, however you want to talk about it. Most of our growth is found, as many other people have said, at the edge of our comfort zone. And yes, it can be great and very, very useful to double down on the things that we're already good at. I do that all the time. I remain a very cognitive, brainy person, and I really like that about myself. But a core part of my process has been accepting the not head-based, the not cognitive, the not brainy parts of my experience and honoring them in the same way that I do all the others. We then talked for a while about the process by which people get to catharsis that big moment where the upwelling happens and change occurs, and it's like a big emotional explosion where suddenly the fizz is let out of the bottle. And I really appreciated a lot of Rick's commentary on this, where he both emphasized and really appreciated the value of catharsis, particularly in a, in a clinical setting inside the therapy office, while also being like, you know what? It happens for different people differently, and not everyone has this big emotional explosion. And that's really okay too. I also really liked the 51% idea, which is basically that over time, different percentages of ourselves believe different ideas. And this was so true inside of my experience. I started out like 99% thinking that being this highly cognitive person was the way to go. And then over time, the more feely soft aspects of my experience began to creep in. As those aspects became a larger and larger piece of the pie, they started to get louder and louder inside of my experience. Until finally there was a tipping point where I fully accepted that this was a need that I had. Where if I was going to keep on going, I had to learn how to relate to my emotions in healthier ways. We talked for a little while at the end about what somebody can do to get a bit more comfortable outside of their comfort zone. And for me, there are a few points here that might be useful for you. First, social support is a huge part of this. It is very challenging to go through this process entirely on our own. Part of the reason that we ally to the safe parts of our nature is, for instance, in my case, being very cognitive, is because those were the parts of me that I was confident that other people would accept. We are social animals. And if we aren't sure that we're going to be accepted by other people, man, it's really hard to change. So if it's available to you, and it's not available to everyone, but if it's available to you, it is a huge game changer to have a group of friends, a partner, family, a parent, a kid, you know, a therapist, whatever, who you can really be confident is going to accept you even as you continue to change over time and even as you continue to face these dreaded experiences. Then, various forms of expressing out. Get the fizz out of the bottle. Let yourself thrash. Let yourself have the emotional experience. Let it be messy. 
if that's what it ends up looking like. And that's really okay. For me, it was super messy from time to time. Then what's really supported me is playing with how I perceive identity. And over time, I've really relaxed my view of identity as this kind of like fixed thing that I was. I was a certain kind of person. I was a cognitive person. I was an anxious person. I was sort of a very rational, very rule-driven, there's a right way to do it kind of person. And I got to a place where I was like, wait a second, is this the person that I want to be? Or is this just the person that I'm telling myself I am? Or maybe really relevantly for you, is this the kind of person that other people are telling you you are? Or is it the person that you want to be on the inside? So this was a kind of big episode today. It was a little broader than normal. We had a little bit less of a plan going into it and we just sort of wandered where we wandered. And I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to it and to uh, give us the gift of your attention. And it's just remarkable to me, frankly, that people listen to these episodes and we get the opportunity to talk to people. And I'm really just so grateful about it altogether because it's been, as you might be able to tell, just enormously useful for me personally. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through whatever platform you're listening on right now, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, if you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can reach us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. It just costs a couple of dollars a month, and you will get a bunch of bonuses that I make in return. Finally, we're planning on doing future episodes focused on answering questions from listeners. So if you'd like to send in a question to be answered on the show, please just email us at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. That's it for today. Once again, thanks so much for listening to the show and we'll talk to you soon.